In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. For the sermon today, I want you to consider and take these words to heart. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that most of you know these words from that famous Easter hymn everyone sings every year, but I'm not asking you to consider those words from that hymn. I want you to consider those words from the Bible. Who said them, when, and why? Now, it's true that familiarity breeds contempt. That is, the more you hear these words and know them well, the more you're tempted to take them for granted. After a while, those words, I know that my Redeemer lives, become some sort of Easter cliche, and we begin to gloss over them. And I don't want that to happen. Those words are much too precious, far too beautiful to become some sort of Easter catchphrase or mantra. So I want to stop right on those words and dissect them and have you know what it means when you hear them and say them and teach them to your children. I'll read you the text again so that you have it clearly in your mind what I'm referring to. Job 19 says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and with lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. These words are just beautiful. All right, these words were said by a Christian man named Job. And without a doubt, of all the words in his 42-chapter book, these are by far the most important words recorded. He spoke and wrote these words roughly 1,800 years before Christ. Just to put it into perspective for you, he wrote these words right around the time that Moses and the Israelites were wandering around the desert for 40 years. That's when Job was alive. That's when he was speaking and writing these words. Job begins all of this by saying, Oh, that my words were written in a book. Now, actually, we could say here that Job is referring to the book, the Bible. And he says he wishes his words were written in the Bible. And they are. And then he goes even further and he says, I wish they were engraved upon a rock in iron lead forever. He's saying that he doesn't want what he's about to say to ever change, to be edited, to be taken away. He wants everyone to hear them exactly as he said them. But more than that, Job is referring to something else. The only words that were written down on a rock in that time were the Ten Commandments. And so what Job is saying is that what he is about to say is at least as important as the Ten Commandments from God on Mount Sinai. That's the weight with which Job is speaking here. Then setting the stage with this, he then speaks these words. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Now before going too deep into these words, I want to point out the context in in which Job is speaking. Job is not a slave to any man on earth. In fact, we know that he was the greatest man in all of the East, the scriptures say. But... He lost it all. In one single day, in one day, Job lost his job, his entire business, 
all of his assets, all of his animals, many of his servants. Ten of his children are killed in a terrible tragedy. In one day, he is struck with all of these things. He's struck with this awful loss and grief of almost all of his possessions and his own family. Now, I I can't even imagine or describe the amount of grief that he is suffering. But while all of this is going on, in the midst of his grief, about a week later, he's struck with some sickness and disease on his flesh. And he's suffering from some sort of painful kind of boils that are plaguing his body. So he takes a hard, uh, 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 a hard piece of clay, a shard, a broken uh, uh, piece of clay from a pot, and he starts scraping his skin to bring some sort of relief to the pain in his flesh. Now, now can you imagine how much pain he must be feeling? If scraping your skin with a sharp piece of clay is bringing relief, then what sort of pain are you in? To begin with, he's in so much pain, he can't even sleep. So here you see Job experiencing terrible grief inside of his body, and he's feeling tremendous pain on the outside of his body. Now, I think you, I think that I know you, uh, the members of Zion, fairly well. And, And I don't think any of us have suffered pain even remotely close to what Job is suffering here. I would argue that apart from Christ, this man, Job, suffered the most of any man. I'm sure people have experienced similar things. Maybe there are people who have suffered just as much as Job, but I know there's no one who has suffered more than him. And it seems like this is enough, isn't it? Well, the scripture tells us that there's an even greater pain that comes to him through all of this. And believe it or not, this is the darkest of the suffering he faces. You've seen the suffering of Job's heart and mind, the suffering of his body. Well, now comes the suffering of his soul. And it comes through three friends. I say this because they were his friends but aren't doing what friends should do. Well, what happens? These three friends come and sit by him for a while and they begin to preach sermons to him. But they aren't good sermons. They're bad sermons. They're not boring or dull. They're evil sermons. These are sermons that now begin to afflict and cause suffering to his soul, a grief and a pain and an anguish that is starting to drive him to the brink of despair. So, what is it? What could these friends possibly say that would crush his soul? What in the world could they say that would bring anyone any more pain and suffering that this man is is now suffering? What, What could they possibly be heaping upon him and burdening him with? Well, all of the friends contribute in some part, but right before this section, the text that we're considering today, one of his friends named Bildad preaches a very evil sermon to Job, and he says this, and this is just excerpts from the, the, long, uh, uh, the long sermon that he preaches. He says, how long will you hunt for words? He's talking to Job. His strength, Job's strength, is famished 
and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. His memory perishes from the earth. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. Now, here it comes. Here's the lethal blow. He says, Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. And this is just terrible. In other words, he's saying this. Look, Job, you are suffering and you have a lot going on. You've lost nearly everything but your life. So obviously, God is punishing you. God is rejecting you. He's not happy with you at all. And you can see it from your life. Just look at your life. Look at how bad it is. That's because you are unrighteous. That's because you are not a good enough Christian. If you want your situation to change, if you want the way God treats you to change, then you need to change and you need to do something else. You need to try harder or pray more or do better. God is not on your side. God is your enemy right now. Now, I'm willing to bet that a very great number of you listening right now have heard this evil sermon before in some way, shape, or form. Maybe not the same exact way, but you've heard some sort of variation. I mean, you can go to the Christian bookstore and find endless stacks and movies of this sort of advice that says something along the lines of, look, you're suffering a lot, right? Well, you need to stop sinning. So much. You need to be a better person. You need to get more committed to God. You need to pray more. God is angry with you. And so here's some ways that you can win his favor. Well, Job and his friends go back and forth this way for a while. Job says, God considers me to be his child, he loves me. And I'm righteous in his sight, not because of my works, but because he declares me righteous. And his friends say, really? Look at your life. Does it look or feel like you're God's child? Does it look like he considers you righteous? Then why is all of this stuff happening to you? And Job says, I have no idea why I'm suffering the way I'm suffering. I am in total darkness and confusion as to why the Lord is having me suffer in this way and why he has put me through what he has put me through right now. But what I am not in darkness or confusion about is this. I know that my Redeemer lives and in the midst of this, in the midst of all of this, Job stands in faith knowing that his Redeemer lives. Now, I want to point something out that's remarkable about what he says. The word for Redeemer here comes from the Hebrew word goal, uh, which doesn't simply mean Redeemer, uh, but it's something more specific. It means kinsman Redeemer. In other words, one who is a descendant or a relative or one who has the same blood as he does. And this is stunning. Job is saying specifically that one of his relatives, one of his descendants, someone from his family lineage 
who has the same blood that he has in his veins will be the one to redeem him. And redeem him from what? He's saying that this one will redeem him from death and sin and suffering, which he's experiencing all right now. Now, even more than this, in verse 26, Job goes on to identify who this distant blood relative of his will be. He says, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. It's the same guy. So listen to what Job is saying, what he's confessing here in this moment. He's saying that the one who is going to redeem him from sin and suffering and from death is going to be his blood relative, his descendant, and that descendant is none other than God the Lord. God will redeem him. God, the one who permitted and allowed all of these things to happen to him, is the same one who is going to redeem him from all of these things. God isn't just sitting idly by, looking down from heaven at Job from a distance. No, God is with him through all of this. And more than that, he will come and save him from all of this calamity and woe. God will not send another. He's not content to send anyone else, not to send a soldier, a king, or an angel, or any creature. No, God himself will take upon himself that burden and will take on the same blood that Job has coursing through his veins. God will take on the same flesh, become his descendant, become Job's brother, and become his redeemer. And we know that Job is confessing faith in Christ, the Messiah, because he doesn't say, my Redeemer will live, or that my Redeemer will come into existence at some point. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Right now, present tense. The one who is going to redeem him is already alive. The one who will be his descendant is alive and living right now. Job is confessing the faith that his Redeemer is both God and man, Christ the Lord. He is saying this 1,800 years before Jesus was born, Job is celebrating Easter, what we are celebrating right now, almost 4,000 years before us here today in this moment. And now Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, that is the last day he will stand upon the earth. And then he says, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. You see, Job goes even further than we do oftentimes. Oftentimes we gather together and we think Easter is simply about the resurrection of Christ. And it is. But it's not only that. Job isn't speaking only of a prophecy regarding the resurrection of Christ. It's a prophecy concerning the resurrection of all flesh, of his flesh too. 
he's saying that it's not only Christ who will stand triumphantly over the grave, but that he, Job himself, will one day stand triumphantly over the grave. And dear saints, this is the point of the Lord's resurrection. Your resurrection. The Bible joins the two so closely together that it won't even let you conceive or speak of the one without the other. 1 Corinthians 15, 13 says, If there is not a resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14 says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Christ has been raised from the dead. Do you think that he will forsake you in the dust? Christ is the head of the church. Do you think that he will leave you, his body, in the grave? No, this is precisely why the Lord suffered such bitter suffering and death, so that he could go to the depths of hell on Good Friday, go to the belly of the grave, and force death to spit you out and let you go. In the midst of all of this, Job takes heart in the resurrection of Christ and his own, and so should you. This means that while you are still suffering in this life, while you're still bearing the cross of pain or anguish, while tears are streaming down your face over the great troubles and difficulties you endure, your great guilt and shame and sin and sorrow and your impending doom of death, no matter what you go through, you have now a Redeemer who lives, who lives for you. You have a Redeemer who loves you. You have a Redeemer who did not refuse the crib or the cross, the pain or the shame, the death or the hell that he had to go through to get you. You have a Redeemer who refuses to leave you in this misery and sorrow for much longer. Your day is coming. Dear saints of God, your day is coming soon. The end of of all of these troubles and pain is coming. You will not always be frustrated or lonely and ashamed. You have a Redeemer. You have a Savior from your sins. You have a Savior from your regret and embarrassment and grief and guilt. You have a Savior, a Redeemer, a God who became your brother and who lives. And because he lives you too live. You may not know or understand why you're going through the things you're going through, but no matter what, there is one thing you do know, one thing that cannot be taken away, and that is that your Redeemer lives. Death used to be the end of you. You used to only have one life to live. Death used to be the end of your life, the end of your joy, but because of Christ. He turned death to simply be the end of your troubles, the end of your sorrow, the end of your pain. And when that day comes, it will be the beginning of your eternal and unwavering joy, the moment 
of your greatest glory. And when you lay your head down in death, when your skin is destroyed, the Lord, your Redeemer, will call you up and out of the grave. And in your flesh, you will see God. And you will see him with your own eyes. So don't give up and don't despair. Don't grow weary or hopeless. You have a Redeemer who lives. And your day is coming soon. Dear saints, have a blessed Easter. Rejoice in the midst of your troubles and your sorrows with hope in Christ your Redeemer. These days are coming to an end and the eternal day of joy is coming soon. And may God grant you true faith to trust in him until the day you see him with your own eyes. Christ Jesus, God's own son, came down his people to deliver, destroying sin. He took the crown from death's pale brow forever. Stripped of power, no more it reigns, an empty form alone remains. Its sting is lost forever. Alleluia. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.